So thinking about ordinations this morning, when I was ordained, God, it seems like a long time ago, 12 years ago, April 28th, 1998, Unitarian Church of All Souls in Manhattan and New York City. I was given a lot of good wisdom on that day, guides, as I started on my path in ministry, much of which I learned, really learned many years after the fact, but still I was given a lot of good wisdom that day. Among that was a charge to the minister. That's a traditional part of the ordination ceremony. It was given by Forest Church, who many of you know was at Unitarian Church of All Souls for 31 years up until his death at a relatively young age last year. He told me a few things that I should do as I entered ministry as a newbie. He said, most important among these, perhaps knowing who I was, he said, wherever you go in your first ministry, find a local team to root for. Knowing that I'm a big Yankees fan, he it's going to be tough for me. I wasn't going to stay in New York. My first ministry said, wherever you go, find a local team to root for. I was headed to South Florida. So I figured, well, I don't have a National League rooting interest. I can't stand the Mets. I'm going to root for the Marlins. That was easy. The Marlins were terrible in 1998. It worked. It worked. There was never any chance they were going to face the Yankees in the World Series. And then 2003. And I had to wear the face after that series was over. The face of not the gracious winner, but the gracious loser. And then I moved north to Philadelphia. Oh. And I really can't stand the Mets, so actually rooting for the Phillies was great. I actually was, as some of you know, at the final game in 2008, Game 5, in the stands with my brother-in-law, who is a long-time, long-suffering Phillies fan. He had tears of joy coming down his face, and it was absolutely wonderful to participate in that. And then the next year. So this is really all I hope right now for this year. It's pen race time. I feel quickened by it. I love it. All I really hope right now is that it's not the Yankees and the Phillies again. <laughs> Obviously, I really want the Yankees more than the Phillies, but the Phillies are in there and the Yankees aren't. I'll root for the Phillies. You have my word. <laughs> the Yankees, and the Phillies, well, gracious winner or gracious loser. I hope you forgive me one way or the other if that's the case again this fall. Forrest told me, find a local team to root for because he knew that rooting and fandom creates community. Community in the sense of belonging, community in the sense of unity, communion, a sense of connection with something larger than oneself. Even if the stakes in baseball, as important as I think they are, are really not global, it does create community. And actually, when the stakes are very, very high, like in today's movie in Invictus, rooting does not just create community, but actually can hold help hold together. That which might be taken apart. Now, Invictus, as many of you know, is the story of Nelson Mandela in his journey from the prison to the presidency of South Africa in the early to mid 90s. Some of you might know that the poem Invictus is a Victorian poem, almost a one of spiritual defiance of someone really battling the odds and finding themselves and finding their path through life. And I must tell you that for this movie, it really redeemed that poem because the last time I heard this poem, it was coming out of the mouth of the terrorist Timothy McVeigh. Invictus was his final words of defiance, of hateful defiance. Sounds very different coming out of the mouth of Morgan Freeman playing Nelson Mandela. 
And he has a challenge that I cannot imagine, perhaps none of us could ever imagine, how to unite a country in the wake of decades of brutal oppression by a minority of the majority. He finds a clue in the fact that the national rugby team is going to be the host for the World Cup, the World Rugby Cup in 1995. But what he also finds is that there is tremendous hostility by the black majority against that white Afrikaner minority. The Springboks is the name of the rugby team. And for decades, they have been a symbol of the repression and the oppression of the black African majority. And so one of the first things that the newly founded post-apartheid government does in its sports authority, it decides we're going to continue to have a rugby team. Has only one black African player on it. But what we're going to do is we're going to change the name of the team and we're going to change their colors. We're going to assert our authority as they had the right to assert their authority, taking away this symbol of our oppression. But Mandela intercedes in a beautiful act of compassionate realism, recognizing that if South Africa is going to exist fruitfully In the post-apartheid era, it is going to have to recognize that the whites still control so much of the money and the land and the power in the country and that he does not want to alienate them. The movie really revolves not just around the team, but about the relationship between a guy named Francois, Matt Damon, the white Afrikaner captain of this, at least at the inception, not very good rugby team and between Morgan Freeman as Nelson Mandela. Now, the reason this movie got made is because in 1995, against all odds, against all odds and still named the Springboks and still wearing their colors that had been wearing for decades, because Mandela said, we are not going to take this away from this new minority. They go on to win the World Cup. They defeat you know anything about rugby, and I know very, very little. I do know the name, the New Zealand All Blacks. They're the Yankees of the rugby world. Unless you root for them, everyone hates them. They defeat them. This movie, Invictus, has every great, wonderful, obvious sports cliche from the natural to Hoosiers to Rocky. It is the plucky underdog who, because of their innate goodness and their grit and their guttiness overcomes all odds, seemingly helps to unite a country and wins the crown. It's filled with cliches, riddled with cliches. And at the same time, it is also beautiful because it has this profoundly serious spiritual message about overcoming a painful past, about finding a way to reconciliation when reconciliation does not appear possible and not letting that damaged, oppressive past doom any hope for a different future. Mandela, when he makes his decision, which his cabinet cannot stand and the black majority does not agree with, to let the Springboks keep their name and keep their colors, he says these words. We have to surprise them with compassion with restraint and with generosity. We have to surprise them with compassion, with restraint and with generosity. Because think about it, it would have been okay. He seemingly would have been completely within his rights to just let the sports authority go ahead and make that decision. But he is bold enough and visionary enough not just to change the colors 
on the pitch, on the field. He is bold enough and trusted enough, finally, because of his 27 years in a cell that literally is as big as from here to here and from here to here. 27 years in that little bit of hell on earth because of his moral authority of what he was willing to suffer and come out and not be embittered. He has the moral and spiritual authority not just to want to change the players. He wants to change the nature of the game itself. Because he can see what the game would look like if it just perpetuated in the post-apartheid South Africa what was true in apartheid South Africa. He says, speaking about the white minority, he says if we take away what they cherish, it will only reinforce the cycle of fear between us. I will do what I must to stop that cycle or it will destroy us all. He wants to change the nature of the game. There's a song by a group that I like quite a lot called the Drive-By Truckers, and it really is a harrowing retelling of what is now a joke or a byword, the Hatfields and McCoys, families that just battle and battle back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and perpetuate the cycle one generation after another, after another, after another, causing violence and death. This song is called Decoration Day. It's about the day when this southern young man goes to his father's grave and really asks his father, what have you given me? Because we've been doing this battle with this family, murder, violence, beatings, one generation after another, after another, so much that we can't even remember what the original offense was. And he is caught up in it. And he feels helpless, powerless to stop it. He is not going there to decorate his father's grave, but instead to spit on it. Because he feels absolutely powerless to end this cycle of violence that he is caught up in. There's a story that Martin Seligman some of you might know him, sort of the quote-unquote founder of positive psychology, teaches at UPenn. He tells a story about a theory of his that's called learned helplessness, which is that people find themselves spinning in their own minds a cycle, a script that they just replay and replay and replay and feel powerless, absolutely helpless to end it. He tells a story about a very, very young, very bright woman who he worked with in a Ph.D. program who he knew of. And this young woman came from a very, very difficult family background and really against almost all odds she had overcome and had entered this high profile Ph.D. program. And then she ran into some tension with her doctoral advisor. It became very tense and the doctoral advisor claimed erroneously that she had cheated, that she had plagiarized someone else's work. She felt powerless and defenseless to rebut this claim that would have been easier for her to do. Such was the power of her upbringing in that script that said, you are a loser. You are powerless. You have learned to be helpless, that she just retreated. She did not contest. She did not want to work with another professor. She ended up leaving the program entirely. This is a cycle playing itself out. Time after time after time. In this sacred calendar, some of you know, we're in the midst, about to be in the midst of the Jewish New Year. In these days, the High Holy Days, they are called, the tradition in which I grew up between the New Year and Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. The focus is on forgiveness, not as an obligation, not as a have to, but as a recognition. That to be forgiving and let go of a painful past is actually empowering. It can create a future that does not just, in a sense of learned helplessness, replicate what has been and says, because what has been, it will always be, and we cannot move beyond it. 
We are not bound by the cycle of just what was. We can create something new. In some ways, the shadow story that I was thinking of all throughout Invictus was not what was going on in the rugby field, but the deeper spiritual work that that entire nation did in the truth and reconciliation process led by Bishop Tutu. I remember seeing him when these not quite hearings, more listenings were hosted. These horrible stories of violence and pain caused within the nation, the truth and reconciliation Process has only this. If you come out and tell the truth about what you did, we will not punish you, but you must tell the truth. I remember the images of Bishop Tutu with tears running down his face, his head and his hands because the stories were so overwhelming. And yet he knew it was so powerful if South Africa was going to move past where it was, not be caught up in that societal learned helplessness, but actually move into a new future together. That the truth had to come out. That it could not just be buried, but opened up and revealed and healed. Now, South Africa back then, last decade, is far from perfect. It's far from perfect now. But South Africa could have been hell on earth. South Africa could have been Rwanda. South Africa could have been a place in that cycle of violence that only goes down and down and more furious and more awful. And it didn't become that. Probably more truth and reconciliation than a rugby match. But that's what Invictus is about. Finding that note, that grace note of surprise, of generosity, of compassion, of saying If we can create a new future, it actually has to be something in a painful situation beyond just what we think our opponents deserve, what we think our enemies merit. Mandela would have been absolutely justified, absolutely justified in taking away the name of the Springboks, absolutely justified in taking away their colors. Absolutely justified. Think of it. Twenty seven years in this. Would have been justified. In being embittered. But he was not. I think because he knew this, that the words vindicated, largely positive word, and vindictive, well, sometimes they're closer than we like to admit. And he knew that he would not be and could not be vindictive as a leader. The kind of surprise that he proposed is a kind of grace. It opens up new possibilities, deeper potentialities, and a wider truth. This past week, I got an email, which I think was so timely, a daily reader from a guy named Richard Rohr, who's a very radical Catholic priest. He helms something called the Center for Contemplation and Action in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In talking about a mind that is stuck in many ways in a kind of learned helplessness, always looking to blame or be blamed, that kind of dualistic mindset, he said the judgmental mind is not looking for truth. The judgmental mind is looking for righteousness and control. From these things come the culture wars and the identity politics that we suffer from today. These culture wars and these identity politics will not get us very far spiritually. Because they are largely all based in our ego, in our need to control and always be in the right. It is about a month that I preached on the so-called Ground Zero Mosque. A lot of the fears that I talked about and talked about with many of you after that service, a lot of those fears are concerns are coming to light. 
Some of you might know, maybe if you were driving here today, you heard this on NPR, that in fact, the fire that was set at a mosque many 1,200, 1,400 miles away from ground zero, away from the quote-unquote ground zero mosque, and it's not that anyway, a mosque in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which has been the subject of vitriol and hatred and bigotry, a fire was set there, which has been declared an arson. There was a New York City cab driver who was stabbed by a man who yelled at him a Muslim epithet. Stories go on and on. There was a story about two young men who went into a mosque in Queens, New York, during Ramadan and chose to urinate there. And then, of course, there is this absurdity that something like 20, 25 percent of Americans, if we believe the polls, believe that President Obama is a Muslim twice from the last time that the poll was taken. This is like an extremely unfunny retelling of that silly old Seinfeld. Remember when George and Jerry are thought to be gay and their line all throughout that is, we're not gay, not that there's anything wrong with that. Here people have to say, President Obama is not a Muslim. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not funny. Six days away from the anniversary of 9-11. At the time, so much of the language was about this being a game changer. In some ways it has, and it did. But in some ways it is that same old script. And seeing Invictus this past week, I found myself asking the question, can we surprise ourselves anymore? Or are things destined to play out the way that they have been in the past? And then right after I watched the movie, this grace note, this wonderful sentiment from Senator Orrin Hatch. From the most conservative state in the union, we're told over and over again, from one of the most conservative senators who came out and said, the people who are building that mosque have an absolute right to do so. Because the freedom of religion is not for some, it is for all. I needed to hear that, and I needed to hear that from Senator Hatch because I found myself getting locked in those dualistic mindsets. Left, right, liberal, conservative, the coast versus flyover country. To hear that note from this senator felt like he was saying we are not helpless to just live out these old bigotries again. And that he was willing to play against type. I think if there's one person who I would love to hear from more than anyone else and whose voice could really make a difference, and I never thought I'd be saying this about him, George W. Bush. I think if he would get up and say, the freedom of religion and religious expression is our most sacred secular right in this country. And it applies to those people building that mosque in that space that is their own as much as it applies to anyone. Because if we take it away from them, we take it away from ourselves. I really hope every day that he's going to speak. Perhaps I am naive, especially in a political season. Learning to go beyond this here we go again mentality. Recently, 
I've been listening to, you remember the name Father Coughlin? Remember from in the 1930s? The demagogue reached millions of people. Except instead of Muslims back then, it was Jews. Millions of people in these weekly radio addresses hearing this language of the enemy within our ranks. All a monolith. All a monolith. All a shady enemy. Take out the Jews and replace them with Muslims. And there are so many people speaking this language of bigotry again. And I have to be honest. With all this fear and with these hate crimes seemingly starting to rise, I have felt helpless. I've actually stopped reading some of my favorite political blogs because I feel despair over it. I've been getting my ground, quote unquote, ground zero mosque news and anti-Muslim bigotry news from The Daily Show. Because one, they're covering it in a more courageous way than so many of the other media outlets are, but also because it makes me laugh. That laugh is my desire to make myself feel comfortable with something that makes me profoundly, profoundly despairing. But that comfortable laugh is a cop-out. It is a desire not to pay attention and not to ask myself, what can I do rather than just sitting on the sidelines. What can I do to be empowered in the right way that will not just change the players, but might in a small way change this game that is so destructive? I know, I know as sure as I breathe that I cannot stand Rush Limbaugh and his Imam Obama jokes that he says, because there are millions of people out there saying ditto. I was in the supermarket the other day, and you know that picture that was first revealed during, I think it was probably 2006, 2008, of the president in that traditional Kenyan garb? Well, I think one of those rags that is right there near the chocolate, nearing the other impulse buys, revealed President Obama is a Muslim. And no, they didn't say not that there's anything wrong with that. I know I cannot stand this way of speaking and being in our body politic, but I don't want to be personally a spiritually progressive version of that which I cannot stand. The Buddhist teacher Kenzi Rinpoche said these words. It is time to redirect hatred away from its usual targets, redirect hatred away from our so-called enemies and toward the existence of hatred itself. Indeed, our hatred is our real enemy, and it is only our hatred that we should destroy. This would be the real surprise. This would be the grace note. Two days ago, a colleague of mine in his Facebook posting, a man who is transgendered, who has understood in his life what it means to be misunderstood, what it means to be rendered invisible or called a freak. Paul Langston Daly, looking to extinguish whatever hatred he was struggling with in his own heart and speaking directly to the hatred that is in mine and perhaps in yours. 
He wrote, standing on the side of love is hard. And it requires us to move from judgment to compassion. And it requires us to move from fear to love. This is a spiritual practice. It is a vital, life-saving spiritual practice. Learning to extinguish that hatred in our own hearts. This can lead us beyond learned helplessness, beyond despairfully sitting on the sidelines, beyond the dualistic thinking of thinking that we know exactly who our enemies are. And so this week, wanting to take the steps that I need to and inviting you to do the same with me. I've known I should have done this for weeks. I knew it weeks ago. When I preached first on the Cordoba House, on the proposed mosque in Lower Manhattan, and I haven't, but I'm going to ask you to do it with me. Today and this week, please, and I will do the same, reach out to your Muslim colleagues or friends or coworkers or neighbors and simply ask, is there anything that I can do? And even if they probably respond, no. Try and say simply this in your own language. I do not hate you and I do not fear you. Perhaps what they will tell you is, yes, you can do something for me and for us and for my community. If they have an idea, come talk to me about it. Talk to each other about it. Perhaps there is a way that we could bring our public voice out there and stand, not in a hateful way, but standing on the side of love and speak for the best and the most noble aspirations of ourselves and of our nation. The better angels of our nature, as Lincoln said. So let's vow these small things. Let's do these things this week. And then let's talk. I know for me, and I hope for us, that it is not enough to sit on the sidelines simply because you cannot stand or I cannot stand how the game is played. Let us be a small part in bringing to the world a grace, a surprise of compassion and generosity and understanding When those things seem to be so scarce in our world right now, let us not wait, but instead, let each and every one of us be the grace that our world needs right now. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit that encompasses all, leaving none out. May we recognize our part in the whole, recognizing that to choose to sit on the sidelines in despair or helplessness is making a choice that does not certainly empower us and it does not lead us out into the lives of others fruitfully, productively, lovingly. May we marshal all our courage, all our love, all our compassion and share it in the ways that we are called so that we can say we are parts of building a world of greater compassion, of greater surprise, of greater love, of greater belonging. Truly, it is this finally that all of us, all of us are fans of.
Amen.